Hello, and welcome to Montana Classical College. Today, we are joined by the author of the Substack, Becoming Noble. He's also appeared on the Exit podcast. I'll put links to Johan's work on the Substack page, and I highly, highly recommend that you subscribe to Becoming Noble. So, Johan, how are you? I'm very well, thank you, Brian. It's fantastic to be here. Excellent. Well, so by happenstance, we both wrote articles about sort of about the same thing, um, about the problem of respectability or the way in which our desire for honor threatens to distort our ability to understand the truth on one hand and to act well in the world on the other. Before we talk about that, though, Johan, could you tell us a little bit about your project? Um, tell, like, how do we become noble? This seems like uh, an unbelievably important thing to, to understand. Yeah, no, well... The good news is it's very easy to become noble. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, well, the stated objective of, of becoming noble, the Substack, is uh, to help readers build power, resources, family, and security as the West declines. That's the kind of aspirational statement. All of those are lofty goals, and I, I make no promises that I will deliver easy solutions, but it's uh, a set of issues that I'm working through in my personal life, and, and I think these things are important to build in public and get uh, the really fantastic feedback that is available in our sphere. I think we have a lot of smart people working towards common goals. And so building in public, thinking in public, I think is this tremendously fascinating exercise. The particular spin on it is that it attempts to distill the really impressive theory-centric output of our sphere, uh, both in, in vitalist and Christian backgrounds, into steps for practical action. That's that's really what I'm most interested in. I've spent much of the last decade consuming the really fantastically interesting theoretical discussions that this sphere produces. And if I had to identify an opportunity for for more content, and perhaps the reason this opportunity exists is that it's a tremendously hard vacuum to fill, um, but I think it's worth, worth the attempt, is to identify these practical steps in the face of an increasingly unstable society and, and to lay the foundations of order for what comes next. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the practical application part is really hard because it does seem like a lot of people have like a, a pretty good account, like pretty good diagnostic accounts of the way that things have gone wrong. But it is very difficult to think about what to build or like how to move forward, how uh, to make the world more beautiful. Um, and so one of the things that, that you've written about is you, you said that you are against respectability and that this seems to be a problem that plagues all of us. And it seems to me that respectability is a permanent feature of human life or this a kind of problem that like almost any human being has to deal with in any time or place. Um, and yet like we also, since it is, it's also, so it sort of is always with us and we have to deal with it as individuals. So then it seems good to have an account of what it is and then how it's a problem. Um, so what is respectability and how is it a problem? So I think that's that's quite a large topic. At first, I would say man is a social animal. And when in doubt, we find consolation and reassurance in the support of others. I think exactly as you say, that's this perennial truth. And I think it's a fundamentally good thing. And I think having a, a healthy openness to the values of peers and seniors is this useful heuristic when navigating the world when uncertain. Um, but fundamentally, part of being a man is having the strength of character and the moral conviction to stand alone when those outside sources are fundamentally wrong as mm -hmm. you view the truth. And so respectability is, it's this subtle thing, is derived from being seen to maximally embody consensus morality. 
the, the morality that is espoused by the others around you, who perhaps you in turn respect, your seniors, your peers. And respectability is the satisfaction that is derived from knowing that those others approve of who you choose to be. Um, but it's, it's sort of therein that the complexity begins to shake out because this is a concept and a value and a desirable end state that is actually tethered in the social fabric that you surround yourself within. Um, and this makes it this tremendously complex concept because it is so context dependent. It's dependent on you as an actor and the actions you pursue. It's depend on, it depends on the sort of teleolo teleology of the society that you exist within at any particular point in time. Um, and so the desire to be respectable is, is both this desire to act in a disciplined moral fashion as this individual actor and thus to be worthy of respect. But also it must be recognized that respectability is this concept that necessitates gaining the respect of others. So it's this fundamentally social phenomenon. Um, and, and sort of therein lies the problem. It's, it's the interplay of the, the, the moral individual and the social fabric that surrounds him. Um, so, so that, that I think is, is how I begin to define the subject. Um, I'd be curious if, if that sort of matches how you view the, the subject uh, before I sort of dive into, to where I think this really goes wrong. Yeah, I, I think that's like a really, really helpful articulation of what respectability is. And it, it suddenly just makes me think of, um, Jack London's book, the sea wolf, where there's this writer guy with very soft hands who's, you know, written some article i forget it's like it shows up in some famous magazine that's still I, I forgot if it's the atlantic maybe but he's like really proud of himself and he sees other people reading the atlantic on a boat that he's on and so in that sense the world in which he is in he sort of is on top of it he's respected by everybody and he t he does take so much satisfaction in thinking like i really did a good thing um, i'm benefiting others and they're honoring me and this is good and it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with that um but then the boat crashes and he's sort of like taken aboard a different boat. Um, so, and he's on a, uh, a steamship at this moment. And then he gets, there's this, uh, a sailboat he gets picked up on. So somehow he's gone from the new world, so to speak, into an old sort of pre-modern world where there's this Nietzschean sea captain, Wolf Larsen. And like all of a sudden, like Humphrey is a pathetic loser in this other world. Like nobody respects him. Nobody thinks that he's a good man because in this world, he doesn't possess the skills or the capabilities that allow you to succeed or do well in it. And he has to work really, really hard in order to become an admirable person in this entirely different moral and social environment. Um, I don't know. So maybe, sorry, just what you were saying just reminded me of that. I had just read that and um, I don't know. So maybe that, that just provides like maybe just a sort of different example or way to kind of think about it. But I think that your articulation of it is really, really, uh, really helpful. No, I think I think that's absolutely right. And and what your example, uh, which I think is wonderful, illustrates really well, is just how sharply this is brought into focus when you radically adjust the context in which it was assumed that respect, respectability uh, existed. And I think this is important um, in our context because people look back to this particular point in American history at which church attendance, for example, was at its highest. Um, mm -hmm. And the social fabric of the United States was at its most morally robust. And they they note in the men of that time uh, a sort of clear respectability. You see these images on, you know, barbecue advertisements and madmen um, from the 1950s where these men are sort of suit-wearing, upright, paragon pillars of their community. And uh, I think people from our time quite rightly identify in those men something very attractive in, in their moral forthrightness. Mm -hmm. 
The problem is, is that if you misidentify the way in which causality is flowing in that circumstance, in the relationship between individual morality and community respectability, um, you can very quickly go wrong in attempting to apply that in our own age. And I think when you look at someone like, um, you know, well, there's there's really any figure you could take, but but any of the sort of primary exponents of conservatism, Inc., a lot of what they're doing is really, in a, some, in a sense, continuing that tradition uh, in that they are, they go up on stage and they present themselves as men and they claim to continue this long tradition of maximally embodying the consensus morality of their age. And this deludes them into taking positions that really no true conservative or, or right-winger should take. Um, and I think that if one is unclear about one's own moral foundation and pursues only respectability, for this reason, you're really building a house on sand. I think the locus of moral action has to be the self, has to be the individual, where one acts morally and one finds uh, that, that that action accords with societal expectations, as perhaps in the 1950s, if, you know, if that view isn't too n- nostalgic, one discovers this kind of charming community harmony. Um, it's a sort of emergent, pleasant property of a community of moral agents who are all making the right decisions for the right reasons. But that's a kind of uh, that's a that's a desirable side effect almost of having a community that isn't inhabited by individually moral actors. I think part of being a man is having the strength of character to keep to one's own convictions uh, and not to succumb to dumb peer pressure when those circumstances fundamentally change. Um, and if you outsource this to others, you're fundamentally nullifying your moral agency and, and indeed your, your masculine duty. Um, and, I, you know, I, I suppose I would suggest that this is an ill-advised time to be doing that. Um, <laughs> and it, it leads down a dark path indeed. Um, you know, it's funny, I was, I was reading Kaczynski's manifesto again, uh, mm-hmm. actually before he died. I just happened to be reading it a few days ago. And he has a very interesting section on leftist psychology, which is kind of the ultimate refinement of this principle of putting so- social fabric first, Rather than the the locus of of individual responsibility, um, right? Which which I could go into if if interesting. Oh yeah, that sounds good. All right. Well, you got to forgive me here because I I'd, I'd like to read a fairly lengthy quote, but I think it's I think it's really really good. I think it's actually great. one of the best passages in in the whole manifesto. Um, okay, let me find it. Uh, quote: The moral code of our society is so demanding that no one can think, feel, or act in a completely moral way. I'm going to slightly edit, unquote, I'm going to slightly edit this for brevity. Quote, some people are so highly socialized that the attempt to think, feel, and act morally imposes a severe burden on them. In order to avoid feelings of guilt, they continually have to deceive themselves about their own motives and find moral explanations for feelings and actions that in reality have a non-moral origin. We use the term over-socialized to describe such people. Over-socialization can lead to low self-esteem, a sense of powerlessness, defeatism, guilt, etc. One of the most important means by which our society socializes children is by making them feel ashamed of behavior and speech that is contrary to society's expectations. And socialization is not just a matter of morality, we are socialized to conform to many norms of behavior that do not fall under the heading of morality. Thus, the over-socialized person is kept on a psychological leash and spends his time running on rails that society has laid down for him. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's that's helpful. Um, yeah, I, I was looking at Kaczynski the other day, um, just thinking about like the motivations of scientists. Um, like Peter Thiel came out with that, uh, or some kind of like address on diversity. Uh, but he, I'm not going to remember it clearly enough, but he sort of says like, well, you know, we always talk about the humanities and how corrupted they are, you know, that this, that they're kind of a mess, but that that's kind of a distraction from a sort of deeper underlying problem is that so too are the sciences kind of compromised. And it seems like that came up pretty clearly uh, in recent times, I suppose. Um, and so like it, when I was, tr- I was trying to write something about like technological stagnation, but I just didn't have anything <laughs> really of my own to say about it. I was just kind of summarizing what other people were saying, but, but at any rate, like uh, Curtis Yarvin, one of the pieces that he'd written for American mind when he was criticizing progressivism, it was a very sober piece where there was like less jokes in it than usual. Almost like he was trying to say like, look, I'm, I'm not going to make an inflammatory attack on progressivism. Like you expect that I will. This is like before gray mirror existed uh, sort of like, I guess in between gray mirror and unqualified reservations, but, but he sort of brought out, I don't know that, if you were thinking about climate change, for instance, there are like, you know, different ways you could go about it. One way is you could have scientists quietly in a dark room, try to create some kind of technology that could get rid of carbon um, or something like that, get it out of the atmosphere. And another way that you could do it is make every single human being change the way that they live, force them to change the way that they live. One of those ways would like, you know, make you feel very powerful, like people have to respect you. You know, if you're able to make them do that, it's like a sign of their obedience to you in that way. And there's a lot more power accrued through that method. And so in his view, it's sort of like no surprise that this would be the option, you know, that a lot of people on the left would prefer as far as that goes. Now, I don't know anything about the climate, so I I don't really have a position on that kind of thing, but um, I don't know. I suppose it it just reminded, what you're saying reminded me of that. Um, No, I I think that there is an interesting parallel there. Maybe there's a really... Uh, tortured analogy to be to be drawn out, but I think um, you know I, I've listened to a bit of Peter Thiel and, and Eric Weinstein's stuff on the decline of science. Uh, I think those mm-hmm. those two collaborated together at the, the Thiel Foundation and share some views on this. They actually had many years ago they had quite an interesting discussion on on this subject. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the changes that they've observed, which has had a negative impact on society's uh, ability to wield science to generate genuinely new original technologies that have a transformative impact on society is essentially the over-socialization of society. So whereas individually, uh, whereas perhaps 70, 80 years ago, particular actors would have been extended a lot of latitude and funding and trust if they were judged to be an intelligent and high agency individual to spend a long time developing a advanced uh, challenging technology, which would then be presented back to the government. Um, now we have over-socialized to some degree the production of science by the interjection of all of these mechanisms like peer review and um, you know funding is contingent on a certain number of citations and a certain number of journals. And so you're sort of extending this social commentary uh, and, and, as you said, power fabric through what should be a truth-seeking exercise, and it has deluding effects. Now, I'm not a scientific academic, so I, I won't I won't draw out that tortured analogy any further. But there is something real there, which is that once you introduce power and social motives to what should be a principled study, very quickly these these sort of strange side effects start to occur. Right, right. And it's very it's difficult to liberate yourself from that. 
th- these kinds of problems, like that you want to be respected, but you also want to know what the truth is. But if these two things conflict, then you find out something very important about yourself, I think. Um, so may- maybe we can move into a couple different responses or like different articulations of it. Although I think, thankfully, like some of the unplanned uh, interludes like brought up that there are even, you know, a lot of really illuminating contemporary accounts of this kind of problem. Um, but I think together between two of the article or the articles that we had written, um, we sort of see a classical response, a Christian response, um, a Nietzschean one. And then I didn't, I don't know how to characterize Edmund Rostin, but maybe I'll just consider a kind of aristocratic response from his play, Cyrano de Bergerac. Um, so maybe I'll talk about the classical response a little bit, and then you can tell us about the Christian and Nietzschean responses, and then um, we'll go from there. A task I am eminently unqualified to, to undertake, but I will, I will do my best, yeah. <laughs> well, I think you have interesting things to say about it. Um, and, you know, I don't think we have to worry about, you know, being qualified to do things uh, if uh, we're talking about respectability in a way. But, oh, uh, so... Here's maybe I'll start with a classical response. Um, so thinking about Plato's presentation of Athens, um, the word sophist can mean, mm, I don't know, a lot of different things in a way, but it seems like it's come down to us as a, as a guy who teaches really important things for pay. Um, and so a sophist is different from a philosopher that makes mistakes because I guess it seems like you could say that at bottom, the philosopher in the strictest sense, is driven, his soul is animated or moved by desire to understand the truth, whereas a sophist, you could say, at bottom, is driven by a desire to, um, I guess, like be honored by other people for saying cool stuff, so to speak, to to say in a kind of vulgar way. Um, So I want to quote from um, Leo Strauss, a 20th century political philosopher, who I'll just admit, you know, up front that I have learned an immense amount from reading his works. And I don't know, it seems to me like he does more than other people to help you try to understand ancient thinkers as they understood themselves and to say that it's quite possible that you could learn fundamental truths from them that you might not be able to learn in any other way. Um, So with that said, here's, here's a quote from Strauss from his book, Natural Right and History. He says, quote, the sophist in contradistinction to the philosopher is not set in motion and kept in motion by the sting of the awareness of the fundamental difference between conviction or belief and genuine insight. But this is clearly too general. For unconcerned with the truth about the whole is not a preserve of the sophist. The sophist is a man who is unconcerned with the truth or who does not love wisdom, although he knows better than most other men that wisdom or science is the highest excellence of man. Being aware of the unique character of wisdom, He knows that the honor deriving from wisdom is the highest honor. He's concerned with wisdom, not for its own sake, not because he hates the lie in the soul more than anything else, but for the sake of the honor or the prestige that attends wisdom, end quote. Um, So, yeah, so I guess in a way this like makes a lot of sense to say the philosopher is driven by truth, whereas the sophist is driven by honor, but I guess, I don't know, it seems like you could say a big problem emerges insofar as in Plato's view, the philosopher is extremely rare. Um, you know, Plato wrote 35 dialogues and um, a- amongst the interlocutors that Socrates speaks to in those dialogues, it's only said in the Phaedrus that Polemarchus from the Republic becomes a philosopher, which is to say, you, 
one overly simplistic way of putting it is you have like 35 or sorry, 34, you know, failed conversations in which nobody becomes a philosopher at the end of it, or like, that's not how they live their life as a result. So it's a kind of elitist account that would suggest then that most of us, most of the time will be driven by respectability, that that's what will move our soul. This, these forces outside of us sort of driving us to do this or that thing, but it won't be, I think you had said in your article, you know, something about how important it is to be internally driven as opposed to you know, drawn by honor or these other kinds of concerns. So, and is there anything you'd want to add to the classical account or does it, does it make sense to move to the Christian account? No, well, I think, I think the passage um, that you just read really resonates. I think one thing that I've observed in myself, certainly a personal failing and, and perhaps in, in some others in our sphere as well is a failure that is particular um, and, and here I'm, I'm talking about the other people in our sphere that is, is particular to, to smart people uh, who enjoy attention, where they will know in their heart of hearts what wisdom is, what a prudent position is. Um, but they will realize that by engaging with provocative sources and using their intelligence, uh, they can come up with these kind of original positions, really challenging uh, complex theory cell, provocative, vitalist, you know, um, you know, postmodern, metamodern, X, Y, and Z. Um, and it, it turns into a bit of a, a, a show of intellectual bravado where um, you are really enamored not with your ability to communicate wisdom to your fellow man, but with the ability of your intellect to draw attention from others. Um, I think I think this is this is something of a, a kind of smart boy syndrome, and it's tremendously entertaining both for yourself and for others if you pull it off successfully. But none of that really has any bearing with making the world a better place. I mean, it's funny we, I mentioned Eric Weinstein earlier, and I think he's quite a good example of this. Um, and this is true really of the the kind of quote unquote rationalist community on on Twitter more broadly. Um, I, I, I don't want to name that particular woman that runs a lot of rationalist polls and has a very disreputable background, but, uh, <laughs> perhaps, you know, who I'm talking about, but, uh, um, one of the things that happens in those discussions is in the desire to seem intellectually challenging and bold and provocative and original and so forth, very, very clearly wisdom goes out the window quickly prudence, virtues, everything goes out the window and it devolves into this kind of totally self-referential, uh, provocative intellectual exercise that is, that is quite valueless. And so I think, I think that is an expression of the sophists of our age in the kind of post-Christian uh, West, wherein the bedrock moral foundation of society has, has sort of degraded due to the decline uh, of, of Christianity. Um, and in that vacuum, there's tremendous potential to, to play in a space with that blasphemy laws, et cetera, um, and to, to create, to demarcate out for yourself um, a new intellectual island, which you can, you can attempt to attract people to. But it really is just, just sort of filling the world with provocative hot air. And I think that's in some way tremendously sad because the people that, that pull that off the best are genuinely smart. But it does illustrate that if misaligned, great intelligence and great wisdom do not necessarily align um, at all. Right. Yeah. Where you can just like almost like play out a thought experiment for yourself, a kind of contrarian thing where you sort of say like, okay, academics say X, the academic is fat. Therefore I have to like find out 
what's the opposite of X and give like an intelligent articulation of the opposite of X. And sometimes, <laughs> yeah, you could wind up with a very strange position in light of that and just sort of present it. Um, and then I suppose the inverse of this problem. So you present the problem of this kind of like lack of prudence and a sort of like, so you want to go beyond or outside the bounds of respectability. Um, and so, and maybe that's a rarer problem, but still like a relatively common problem in this sphere. But then it's sort of like, I guess the inverse of it is trying to be too prudent where you say, well, I know that I'll have to pay a price if I say the truth right now, say you're at an institution where they're changing like the reading list or something like that um, to make it more diverse um, and less concerned with excellence. And you could say to yourself like, well, I will pay a big price if I stick up for this book over that book. And maybe, maybe it's like the situation, if there's truly nothing that you can actually affect within the situation, like sort of like, you know, I think you brought out things like in your exit um, uh, podcast interview, where you, sort of like, well, like if you're at, like if there were like a diversity seminar at your workplace, which maybe are not always quite as bad as they're made out to be, or maybe the, the worst examples are always the ones in front of us or something along those lines. Does it really make sense to like stand up and like start shouting at them? Like, no, this is degenerate. You guys are evil. Stop doing this. Because it seems like, so it's like the, maybe, maybe I could put it like this to say that sometimes maybe we say I'm going to be prudent and keep my head down and it's an act of cowardice. And it's an act of cowardice when you could actually win in that situation in a way that allows your side, the side of truth to keep winning or something along those lines. But if you're like one man against 10,000, you know, you're, you're better off finding your friends and then working together against the 10,000 as opposed to suicidally going against 10,000 people when you can't win or something along those lines. So, so I guess this would just be kind of inverse problem. What you're proposing is to say that, yeah, on one hand, you can be imprudent, overly bold and say things that draw attention or you can be so afraid or fearful of negative attention that you tell yourself you're being prudent when really you're being a kind of coward. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I think what this requires is uh, this sort of radical self-honesty about one's motivations. Mm -hmm. You know, if you take the, the seminar example, which you outlined, and you decide to stay silent, you might be doing that for two reasons, or you might be doing that for some unfortunately confused intermingling of the two. The first reason is, frankly, that it leaves you more comfortable. You don't draw the ire of other people in the room, and you'd rather not have to deal with that, even though you are failing to stand up for the truth uh, as a result. And then the second motivation might be something along the lines of, I have made a prudent calculation that I intend to fight this madness as best I can with my whole life, with all the resources I can bring to bear over the context of a long timeline, and I have to support my family in doing so. And it simply doesn't make sense uh, to, to commit um, professional suicide right here, right now, over one particular battle. But I am not leaving behind the cause that I, that I hold dear. So I think this question of, of motivation, true motivation, not self-deluded motivation, and this is something you always have to be on guard against, uh, right. is slipping from one pure motivation into, into actually a self-satisfied motivation. Um, but I think that that question of guiding light is is really central to this. Right. So then speaking of guiding light, could you tell us a little bit about how a good Christian would articulate or understand the problem of respectability? I mean, I can tell you how how this Christian understands the problem <laughs> of respectability. Uh, um, 
but uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is a sort of little snapshot of, of how I've been thinking about it, drawing on a few interesting sources. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the the section I quoted at length um, in my piece was a sermon uh, by a preacher called A.W. Tozer, um, and the sermon is called uh, "The Saint Must Walk Alone." And I, I think you know, I'm not of his denomination, but I, I think it's a really fantastic sermon. It's very moving, um, and essentially. It is a reaffirmation of the fact that a individual that is committed to being a saint, that is committed to fully expressing Christian virtues in his person and in his actions and in his dedication to Christ, must necessarily find himself alone for long stretches of that path. Because we exist in a fallen world. And, you know, we're fallen beings and those around us are fallen beings. And we will have moments of deep imperfection. And those people around us will have moments of deep imperfection. Uh, and, you know, when we are at least in a, in a temporary position of strength and, and virtue and, and uprightness, we can't deviate from that path uh, to, to go and join those that have hopefully temporarily fallen off. And so mm-hmm. these long moments of solitude result um, you know, perhaps to, to read a, a small part of the quote that I included, mm-hmm. Toza says, quote, the loneliness of the Christian results from his walk with God in an ungodly world, a walk that must often take him away from the fellowship of good Christians, as well as from that of the unregenerate world. His God-given instincts cry out for companionship with others of his kind, others who can understand his longings, his aspirations, his absorption in the love of Christ. And because within his circle of friends, there are so few who share his inner experiences, he is forced to work, walk alone, mm-hmm. uh, end quote. Um, and, you know, I, I accompanied that a little bit further down with a, sorry, I'm just hitting you with a wall of quotes here, but I think it's quite good, good to, to frame the, the discussion mm-hmm. um, with, with a, a biblical quotation. Uh, I think I, I took this from uh, the, the Dewey Reims Bible, um, which, is, which is one of the older Catholic translations from the Latin. Uh, this is Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice's sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when they shall revile you and persecute you and speak all that is evil against you untruly for my sake. Be glad and rejoice, for your reward is very great in heaven. For so they persecute the prophets that were before you. End quote. And uh, I, I think this is... Something that is important to draw out from that passage um, is the word untruly. And this is part of what makes this so complex, is that if you have deviated away from the respect of your peers, there is this complete necessity that you are doing so in the service of divine truth, of of perennial truth, of of the truth of the transcendent, the good, the beautiful, Mm -hmm. and the true. And that you have in some way managed to judge a discrepancy between what everyone around you is telling you and what you believe is right. And, um, and you know, the, the, the uncertainty must always creep in, unfortunately, when you, when you deviate in that way. And the truth is, is that if you have deviated and you draw condemnation from others, that condemnation is not enough to get you into heaven. You have to have accurately discerned the truth. Um, there's a, you know, I own what's called a Hayduck Bible, which is this giant, um, giant Dewey Reams Bible that includes a commentary from a, a, I think a Reverend Haydock. Um, and he has a couple of lines on this passage at the bottom, which say, quote, 
we must not think that suffering persecution only will suffice to entitle us to the greatest promises. The persecutions we suffer must be inflicted on us on his account, his meaning, the Lord. And the evil spoken of us must be false and contradicted by our lives. Uh, end quote. And so this is this is by no means easy. It it really is, and and you can see now why I tied in Nietzsche because we're we're in deeply Nietzschean territory um, now. But but let's 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 put that to the side for one second, and I'll I'll hand back to you. Mm-hmm. No, those those quotes make a lot of sense, and and I think it sort of draws out the way in which you could think. Okay, so I I think that the you know mainline account of respectability is something that ultimately makes people's souls worse to the extent that they believe in that account and then act on it. Um, and so you could think that and then think, okay, so I have to go against the conventional opinion, but then it is a kind of dangerous thing to do because as you're you know, pointing out, it's very easy to diverge from the contemporary opinion. And then like you're swimming out to some sort of like strange Island or something like that, that wouldn't be towards God. Um, and in that way, yeah, it, I just think it was like a, a well put to say how dangerous it is that, yeah, that you can think like, so because people that I think are bad don't view me in a good light, that therefore means that I'm correct, but that's not the case. Um, uh, <laughs> that it, that it, is, it is a dangerous thing to step outside, but uh, I suppose it's a risk that one has to take, um, but being really careful like the whole time. So like, again, like I think as you'd put it, the question of like self-knowledge or always trying to come to grips with what's actually moving our soul, what actually sets my soul in motion when I do what I do, is it just comfort and pleasure or is it something that's more transcendent? Um, or is it just hoping for acclaim or is it something more transcendent? Like what is actually causing you, moving you to do what it is that you're doing? Um, it's self-knowledge is difficult. It is, and and frankly, it's terrifying. It's it's terrifying being left alone. Uh, you know, as others around you move off in directions in which they all mutually assure each other it's the right thing, it's progress, um, it's it's the future, it's modernity, and you just sort of watch them fade into the moral distance, and you're left alone with your family. You know, and all your friends, none of them are married, but you're married in your early twenties, and. And they're going out and they're enjoying themselves and they're spending their money on traveling and so forth. And you've got two kids and you're anchored to the home and you're working, you know, one job, two jobs uh, to, to create the money that's necessary to sustain a large family. And you just watch these people fade off into the distance, move to more and more expensive areas and so forth, and, and, and you're left alone. I think, I think that terror is very real. And I, I really think the only way um, that you can mitigate against that no Christian should ever, well, no Christian is ever fully alone. They, mm-hmm. they have their relationship with, with God. But likewise, I mean, I, I find it very useful to identify particular individuals in the generations that have gone before us who I think are really worthy of tremendous respect and that I hope would respect me. And, uh, you know, this can, this can, you can draw from the saints in this regard. Um, I, I have a particular um, admiration for my grandfather who, you know, perhaps I won't go into, but, but means a huge amount to me and, and led a very incredible life. And I think just having his picture on the wall, um, and, and reading his, his story sometimes, um, 
it creates a very definite image of a moral actor that means something to you and that you hope would mean something too, that you can anchor your need for respect in, that is set apart from this kind of drifting tide that we're all constantly surrounded by in the present social fabric. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, it's kind of nice to have like the anchors at both sides. Like at first, the anchor seems bad, like you're not able to move in the way that these other people are moving. But on the other hand, uh, there's a kind of yeah rootedness or like looking or like stability or something like that. Um, so maybe I'll, uh, I'll try to shorten this a little bit this passage I have from my friend's uh, Substack. This this guy, Fokian, uh, I've recorded uh, four episodes with him on understanding modern liberty. So some of you listening already know him. Um, but he started to write a lot more about Christianity. And he, I don't know, I think has like a, a pretty interesting way to create a synthesis between Christianity and vitalism, or at least that's what he's trying to to work on. But in here, here's a quote from his article called Aristocratic Christianity. And I think maybe this can tie together then the sort of Christian and Nietzsche sections. He says, in other words, the parts of society that exist in every society, the poor and the rich, the weak and strong, the ruled and rulers can only cohere and cooperate when the lower serves the higher and the higher serves an ideal, a transcendent and glorious thing. It is my claim that Christianity is a good religion but it has been mistaken for a bad religion because everything today is rewritten in accordance with the feverish insolence of the mobilized poor, i.e. little c communism has reinterpreted the world in accordance with the wishes of an irrational psychotic poor person. <laughs> he has some funny formulation sometimes. Um, and then he says, today, Nietzsche is the champion of many ideals and of real ideals. Unfortunately for Christians, Nietzsche never missed an opportunity to attack Christianity. What if, though, Nietzsche, in his attacks on Christianity, understood that he was attacking a religion warped by time and circumstances? Philosophers often mistreat religions and other philosophers whom they knew better, but whom they also know cannot be saved in the present circumstances. And then he goes into an example of how Aristotle often mistreats Plato. Like, uh, you could say, for instance, like in book two of Aristotle's politics, he criticizes Plato's Republic, but he only summarizes Plato's Republic up to book five. So the idea that the best city or the city in speech, it's like sort of designed to produce philosophers. And if you don't go past, you know, if you don't get to the end of book five, then you don't realize that. And so there's like a way in which Aristotle's kind of done an injustice to Plato, but Aristotle also knows that Plato will be misinterpreted. And so he doesn't try to say, like, okay, here's the true reading of Plato. I'm just going to treat him the way that I have to under the current circumstances and then try to state the truth in the best way that I can. And so Fokian then tries to insist that maybe to some extent Nietzsche treats Christianity as Aristotle treated Plato in that respect. Um, Now that's like a huge claim to make because Nietzsche does say so many disparaging things about Christianity, but, um, but I don't know. So Fokian at any rate wants to say though, that maybe maybe it is a distortion like that Nietzsche has intentionally distorted this because he sort of sees a post-Christian age coming. Um, and maybe he doesn't think that, I don't know, maybe I can leave it at that and sort of like ask you if there's anything that makes sense to you to talk about either with respect to Fokin's quote or with respect to your account of Nietzsche's 
um, words on respectability. No, I, I, I like that quote, actually. I was, I was enjoying listening to you there. Um, you know, I, I, as many Christians do, have a complex relationship to Nietzsche. Ultimately, though, I really value him as a thinker and I engage with him and his work as much as I can, which is not as much as, as I'd like to. But the reason for this is I, I think Christianity in that particular moment in time deserved and needed an intelligent and vivid critic. Um, and, and that is because Christianity, if not properly formulated, does descend into this platitudinous mess of ill-defined goodwill to other people, peace and love, uh, you know, judge not, blessed ye. Uh, you yourself be judged, and, and so on and so forth. And it, it just descends into this, well, I'm not going to make any moral statements about your behavior. I don't expect you to make any moral statements about my behavior. We're equal. And then very quickly, you're left with a sort of unattractive mess that is indistinguishable from the, the present condition. And um, and I think that that is a disaster. And I think that Nietzsche, you know, savagely attacked Christianity, and, and there are many claims of his that I that I disagree with. But I do think that the vividness with which he did so would not land and would not have the vigor that it did had it not been for the fact that Christianity in the West was well on the path to this kind of um, uh, degradation of its, of its structures. And Christianity is, is a deeply hierarchical worldview. Um, and I suppose, you know, I, I can, I'm, a, I'm a Catholic and I have a fairly Catholic view of this, but um, there, there is no element of the hierarchy of Christianity that is not deeply regimented and structured and oriented towards the, tr the transcendent. You know, you have you have God at its at its top, in, and then within the angels, you have orders of angels. You have the highest orders, the seraphim, the cherubim, the thrones. You have middle orders. You have lowest orders. You know, principalities, archangels, and so forth. And then, you know, within um, within the church, you have at least within the Catholic Church, you have different orders of prelates and, and so forth. And then there's this notion that you carry with you some degree of your holiness into heaven. And even within heaven, there are those that sort of sit closer to God and so forth. And and that sends downwards into hell. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm not a Dantean, but, but you, you know, perhaps there's different circles of hell and so forth. And, and so it's this, this deeply structured and hierarchical view that imposes a very specific form of... Um, orientation through a levels framework towards that aspirational, distant, um, but ever-present figure of God. And if you degrade that, if you degrade that majesty and that the, the set of demands that that imposes on us, you do end up with something. Um, you do up with, end up with something very unattractive. And, and I, it's for that reason that I do try my best to engage with Nietzsche, mm -hmm. um, no matter how much. Uh, that annoys me sometimes, and no, no matter how personally I have to take the insults, uh, it is it is always a tremendously rewarding exercise. Right. Yes. So, um, yeah, and it, it seems maybe with Nietzsche, to some extent, like he brings out how there's a kind of war of moralities or something like that, or human types, and that's part of the difficulty. Um, and that the part of then the problem of respectability, maybe in his view, is something like precisely because different human types are somehow seeing the world, interpreting the world through entirely different moral lenses, then uh, there's like a way in which if you want to go against the reigning morality, the one that most people find to be respectable, 
then you literally are seen as a criminal through their eyes. Um, and it's very uncomfortable to be thought of that way because I think generally speaking, and I suppose maybe this is a platonic lesson, but maybe even a Nietzschean one, you know, if we are the, uh, the beast with red cheeks or something like that, um, that we can't help but want to see ourselves as just. Unfortunately, even or especially when we're unjust, we try to like reinterpret things in a way to like make us seem like we're just when we're not being just. But at any rate, we want to understand ourselves as just. And I think this is something you had talked about earlier, which is just to say that um, like doubt starts to creep in when the majority of people think that you're doing something unjust. So like as in the case of the saint who's drawing away um, or being lonely, other people, you know, might think like, oh, that's because they're a bad person. They don't think that the things that we're doing are good. And that must mean that they're bad. Um, so like Nietzsche kind of like helps us see, I don't know, I guess the, how, how difficult it is to go beyond um, respectability. And then it leads to errors too, because when you do go beyond what your contemporaries take to be respectable, you feel as if it's an act of overcoming. I've overcome myself because I've liberated myself, at least in part, from their concerns. But precisely because you feel a sense of self-overcoming, then wherever you land, you might just be satisfied that you're there now um, and not think that like there needs to be more or something along those lines and just be like, oh, I found the island. It's This is the place to be. Um, no, that's that's precisely it. I, you know, I um, it's funny with the Nietzsche quote that I pulled for my piece – you just need to change three words and it's a perfectly Christian message. But <laughs> if you include those three words, it is, I mean, Christianity is totally at the window and it's um, this kind of will to power, prideful vision. And it's funny how subtle that distinction can be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, may, maybe before I, before I quote Nietzsche, because I am no Nietzsche scholar, I'll, I'll quote another, another Nietzsche scholar uh, whose uh, passage that I think is re- very relevant to this discussion. I, I discovered when I was looking at, um, what he said about AI, which is a quote that always makes me laugh, but this is um, this is BAP uh, quote. Mm-hmm. In men of intellect, the desire for prestige is often the most disgusting, especially when there's no native manliness, because this leads to cowardice and lies to others and oneself. For this reason, Nietzsche said, manliness is the first requirement of the philosopher, but there's no one further from the philosopher than the unmanly nerd. And there's no enemy more implacable of the human race and of the genius of the species than just this nerd and everything he represents. Uh, which is, you know, uh, <laughs> not unentertaining. Let's let's put it like that. It's a, it's a good passage overall. Right. What the the Nietzsche word? I um, well, it's the first three words of this passage that you have to change to change Nietzsche to a Christian. Uh, but he did include these words, so I'll read it in full. Quote. The great man is colder, harder, less hesitating, and without fear of opinion. He lacks the virtues that accompany respect and respectability, and altogether everything that is the virtue of the herd. If he cannot lead, he goes alone. There is a solitude within him that is inaccessible to praise or to blame. End quote. But what a perfect vision of the, the ideal Christian man. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Um, right. So, uh, well, that's that's really helpful. I think to like view the passage like in both ways to see it through Nietzschean eyes and through Christian eyes. Um, 
do you have any more that you'd like to say about Nietzsche? Um, no, I won't. I won't expose how much of a suit I am on this issue. Sure. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you, um, one one passage um, that I do think is very valuable in this regard, and and has this kind of odd intermediary status between the Christian and pagan worlds, is Evola has a section dissecting. Um, Nietzsche's failure to materialize a coherent moral philosophy with the will to power, because ultimately it cannot help but be drawn downwards by the sort of gravity of, of nihilism that it's always trying to rise out of. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I would simply recommend that passage. I, I don't have it with me, and I'm, I'm going to do Evola a grave injustice if, if I <laughs> attempt to, to summarize his work at length. But uh, I'd, I'd wholeheartedly recommend that passage as more exciting reading on this topic. Yeah. And and there's like a way that, uh, I mean, just, I suppose, speaking of gravity that like in Ray Bradbury's dandelion wine, there's like a point at which the main character, Douglas, he's walking home with his grandpa and his brother and he sees these two other boys. And it's said that he feels this gravitational pull, um, as if he's like a body in outer space moving towards like a heavier body. And that, I don't know, sometimes in your own perception, you can almost like feel that there's gravity pulling you in different directions. And so if something's pulling you towards something, that's like maybe our immediate assumption is like, oh, well, my instincts are good. This, this must be a good gravity. Um, but it, you know, it might not be good gravity. It could be a bad um, gravity. And to go back to one of the other quotes you were talking about. Yeah. I think something that makes your project pretty interesting to me um, is that, I don't know, there's a way in which maybe, you know, I, in my own life, uh, there's the constant threat to fall into just being a nerd, so to speak, just to live in the world of words and not to live enough in the world of action. And I don't know. So, uh, so I've tried to think a lot more about practical kinds of things. Although even in trying to do that, you know, sometimes it'll just still draw me into like more theoretical things, but nevertheless, um, it does seem like this is a, this is a difficulty um, that BAP and maybe Nietzsche bring out. Definitely. Yeah, I, I think, you know, on the subject of respect, respectability, maybe to try and round it off, when you try and bring your theory into the real world and create something, you open yourself up to radical failure and you open yourself up to judgment and derision of others. You put something on the map that can and probably will fail and will thereafter stand as a testament to your failure that will be deployed mercilessly by those you argue with from that point onwards. And yet it is still a, a task that we are we are called to do. And I find my project um, very rapidly exposes my own failures. You know, when when I set myself up to say, you know, to others, these are the things I think we should be doing, very quickly I realized I had not done anywhere near enough to act as any kind of leader myself. Um, and there's so much more to do. Um, but I think there is virtue in making the attempt in public anyway and exposing mm-hmm. one's weaknesses and failures and limitations um, and, and not being afraid of, of losing the respect of, of others if you are able to tell yourself at the end of the day um, that you acted uh, in pursuit of, of the beautiful, the good, and the true. Right. Yeah, I think maybe to say one sort of, I guess, concluding thing, I think, I don't know, as far as like self-knowledge goes, I remember, you know, as an undergraduate student reading a lot of Plato and thinking like philosophy and self-knowledge were like the key things to like pursue in my life at the time. Um, And I was kind of apolitical. I just like didn't really care about politics in any way. I just was ignorant about it, you know, didn't really know anything. It's 
it's kind of astonishing me today to sometimes talk to like, you know, some sort of like, you know, cousin or something who's in like seventh grade and see like how much they know about politics when I didn't know anything about politics that, you know, when I was in seventh grade, like almost not like I knew maybe who the president of the United States was, but like nothing besides. And I think to some extent that was actually a good thing, but nevertheless, that kind of like a political character of my education made it so that I didn't examine some of the contemporary opinions. Maybe you could say about like women or not even being able to talk in any kind of like way without indignation about questions around race or something like that. I didn't really just think about those kinds of things at all. Some of like the idols of our regime. Um, And I don't know. So because maybe I was drawn in a way by the forces or the gravity of respectability uh, towards not examining those things. So I think like, I remember joining like a progressive organization after college and all of a sudden being like, oh, I, I guess I should take all of these like very progressive things, like very seriously. I didn't take them seriously before. But then the people at that organization were like, why are you reading Plato? Like, what, what are you doing? Like, that's that's not a good book to be reading. And I don't know. Then I thought to myself, like after a little bit, I feel like most of the progressive thoughts or cornerstones, I felt like I was able to like learn most of them in like four weeks or something like that. And then you just kind of apply them to new things. I, I'm not saying that there couldn't be a more impressive progressive thinker or something along those lines. But I just remember thinking it took me like a whole year to try to understand what a Plato's dialogues, like as far down as I think that my intellect could take me at the time. And so there's just like an ocean of depth there, whereas it didn't seem like there was an ocean in this other place. And it it just, I came to see like, I have to choose between one of these two things um, and fight against, you know, enemies of truth. And I think there's a lot more truth on Plato's side uh, when it comes to that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I think a good indicator that you're mouthing progressive platitudes is that you'll get lots of nodding in the room, but you'll feel quietly dirty inside. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's a very good way to put it. Um, yeah, so you can read a lot of like Plato, but then not actually examine any of your own opinions, which is what the you know he invites you to do anyway. So you can do lots of things that seem to take you outside of the horizon of respectability without actually doing it um, in your own soul. Um, which is a difficulty, I suppose. So in closing, Johan, is there anything that you would like to say about um, respectability that hasn't yet been said in this conversation? Only that I hope this conversation hasn't so degraded the ability of people to respect your podcast. They never tune in again. Uh, But I've I've enjoyed the conversation immensely. Yeah, likewise. I learned a lot. I feel like um, it was very helpful for my own thinking. And um, I'm sure other people... (laughs) will actually come to respect it more in light of your contributions rather than less. Well, uh, that's very, that's very kind of you to say. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you, Johan. Uh, Brian Wilson out.